0: Keep saving more with Lidl. Our delicious Irish board beer approved stewing beef was €4.79, now only €4. Two 28 day matured board beer approved Irish beef medallion steaks were €3.99, now just €3. And get 25% off all fresh berries. Lidl, more for you.
1: Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent and this is the first week where we are giving you a weekly dose of Pod's Own Country. I can tell you're all very, very excited um, and we've got our political editor Rob, Rob Parsons with us later on. He is talking to Richard Beecham about all things politics in Leeds. But before we get to that, I'm really excited to be joined by... Anna Round from IPPR North Think Tank. Hi, Anna. Hi, Jerry. Thank you so much for being with us, and Tom Lee's as well from the Northern Policy Foundation. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jerry. Thank you, guys, so much for being with us. Now, this is. Part of our new kind of uh, approach, I suppose, for getting some experts on board, and we were talking beforehand, and you both laughed a little bit at the at uh, the prospect of being called experts, but you are, aren't you? You are the experts in your field. Um, <laughs> let's let's kind of kick off a bit with coronavirus because it's all everyone's talking about. Um, Anna, I'd like to start with you. Yeah. How? Do you think coronavirus has affected us in Yorkshire in the north and kind of what have the what were repercussions been from the virus?
2: Um Absolutely huge, it's really hard to think of of any part of life that that, that hasn't been affected by this. Um, and I think we've we've all kind of got to that stage where um, it's, the, it's, it's starting to feel normal and you start to sort of read things or see things on TV from before this period and it, it's starting to look a bit odd when people mm-hmm. are you know, going out and about without masks. Um, I mean very seriously, obviously there are there are still constraints on ev- on everyday life in, in order to keep the virus in check. And this morning we've had the extraordinarily um, grim economic news about what's happened to the economy. Um, That will unfortunately hit the North hard because... Even before COVID hit, um, we were on the wrong end of a lot of regional inequalities. Um, we were coming off a, a decade of austerity um, and a, a long period of, of really centralised policies, which have not worked well for the north. I think we we need a really um, coordinated uh, investment in the region so that it can fulfil its potential. And, you know, do, do as much as it can do in that recovery. I think the other thing that's um, all over the news this morning is um, the, the exam results and those are the tip of a, um, a very big iceberg of, 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 of issues for children and young people. So we've had the disruption to education. Um, we've also had the disruption to young people's lives and I think um, at a stage where people are learning and developing about how they relate to the world, it's it's a, been a really particularly difficult time to find yourself in isolation with that world turned upside down and being being, you know, that there were a lot of uncertainties in sort of forging your own path at that age. um, And more uncertainties have been piled on, um, you know, of necessity to keep infection under control. But uh, it's difficult. We've got a a lot of a a lot still happening. It it has a long way to go.
1: Mm -hmm. We'll come to schools, I'm sure. (laughs) Absolutely. um, We'll come to schools, I'm I'm sure. But I mean, Tom, are those the kind of same things that you're hearing from people or are you hearing different concerns? What are you hearing from the people that you kind of work yeah. with?
3: Well, I think um, I think there's a couple of things that Anna said that I'd uh, pick up on. The mm. first thing is, um, you know, when uh, people were calling and sort of clambering to go into lockdown and have these strict conditions imposed on us, there was little discussion about the actual negative side effects sure. on people from them, you know, uh, A&E, obviously, attendance is down, heart attack attendance, uh, attendances with heart attacks is down, as well as the educational problems that are generated uh, from that. And I think that now, you know, Public Health England is looking more holistically at public health rather than just thinking around coronavirus, Mm. COVID-19, because anything that's put in place has other impacts and is quite damaging. In terms of um, the ONS figures and uh, the the massive sort of unprecedented recession that we're going into, I mean, it's hardly a surprise given that most of the businesses were shut and everyone sort of holed up in their homes. Um, But because of how the North's economy is structured with a lot more people working in retail jobs, manufacturing jobs, accommodation, hospitality, obviously a lot of those kind of jobs can't be done from home so, mm. so they, they really sort of just ceased and stop operate, stopped operating for a long while so that's why the impacts are probably going to be much more significant in Yorkshire and the rest of the north than it is in other parts of the country
1: it's really interesting about those kind of jobs that you're talking about because you know it's um you've mentioned kind of retail there you've got massive tourism and hospitality sectors as well haven't we where yeah. you know 35 percent of jobs are under threat and things like that. And I think also the manufacturing that you're talking about, for those places that didn't shut down, a lot of those jobs has been really difficult, I think, to impose things like social distancing and haven't quite got yeah. on top of that yet. I mean, Anna, is that something that you kind of would agree with? I, like
2: I, I think so. And I think the other thing is that, you know, that as well as um, the sort of challenges around setting up individual workplaces to, to make mm. them safe for workers and appreciate that that's hugely difficult and very much depends on the circumstances of of individual workplaces, individual workforces. Um, we uh, th- this recession is going to be different from any that we've had previously and i think particularly looking at how demand changes because obviously you know that that will drive um opportunities for those manufacturing firms so we we kind of don't know we, you know there there's, there's there's some forecasting but we don't know how demand will change and and how that will then knock on to things like employment so what will people want to buy we know that people haven't been in a position to you know to use a lot of those hospitality and retail services um but equally some very big changes for manufacturing so i mean one of the you know one of the things that's well down is 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 automotive manufacture Mm. um so there there are some really big shocks i think in the response that it's going to have to be quite an agile response quite a a response with quite a lot of place-based um, thinking in it so that, again, those really local effects can be looked at. And it's going to need to be a response that, that looks very carefully at how um, the, the labour market is being restructured by these changes and how you can match people who who need jobs to the jobs that are becoming available. Um, so there's, that there's quite a, a need for quite a different way of responding to this from previous recessions. I think, I think um, it's quite oh,
3: sorry go ahead Tom I, I was just going to say I think that um, I think that we we've we've become used to this phrase around that we need to make things safe we need mm. to make everything safe and I think you know people need to realize that n- nothing is safe that there's a lot of household accidents take place there's a lot of road traffic incidents and people down their cars. There's no such – we need to sort of get away from this mindset that there is this perfectly safe world that you can go out and live in. I think it's it's more about taking practical, sensible steps and not, not sort of trying to con people into thinking that they're ever perfectly safe doing anything because it doesn't mm-hmm. exist.
2: I I think most but probably most people you know living and working and in in, in most industries are aware of that it's it's sort of reducing to a level of safety that makes sense. I think you you raise a really interesting point there because we've had some discussions that suggest you know do we go do we protect health or do we protect the economy and of course those two things are really really closely linked so you know rising infection rates will not be good for the economy for a, a whole range of reasons so you know that that's a a, a balance that needs to be struck.
3: Well, I think um I think I slightly disagree with that, to be honest, because I think that uh, you know originally I, I did physics and I've looked quite closely at the data around this. and I think one of the dangers of looking solely at case measures is obviously as you test more people, and the volume of testing has doubled over the last couple of months. So as you test more people, you find more cases but a huge number of those cases are asymptomatic and they were just not really being detected before. So I think that we need, to, we need to have a better understanding about what triggers local lockdowns and actually you need to look at a lot of different measures because if you look at things like 999 calls, those are down and plateaued. They're, they're at rock bottom. If you look at hospital admissions, they're, they're at rock bottom. And there's about five times more people since June dying of flu than have been dying of coronavirus. So I think it's quite dangerous to get too obsessed with just case numbers because they miss the full picture.
1: And I'm glad that you mentioned actually there, Tom, the local lockdowns because we've we've seen, haven't we, spikes in Bradford, Kirklees, Calderdale where restrictions have been placed back on people kind of visiting people at their homes and things like that. And I mean there have been some there's been some jostling from some of our Tory MPs that really that should be done on a postcode level. I mean what are your what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I mean the first thing is you said you we've seen some spikes. Um, the ONS who's got the most reliable data, because Public mm-hmm. Health England's data is uh, need to take it with a pinch of salt because it's quite unreliable. Um, if you look at the ONS, uh, what they put out about it, they say that there's, there's no clear evidence to say with any confidence that infection rates really differ by region around the country. Okay. Um, and this is the challenge that uh, I think we need to think about. When, you know Per local authority, they're sort of doing about 300 tests a day, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, you, when you're doing a relatively small number of tests, um, and then you're extrapolating that to then say, well, that means that per hundred thousands, it means that there are so many people who've got it. You get into statistical hot water, sort of extrapolating in that way. So I, I think we, we need to have an understanding of what, what actually uh, triggers these local lockdowns and what the holistic data is saying. Because I think when you look on such small levels the sample size and the number of tests being taken, especially on postcode level, I think it, you're getting into really dangerous, unreliable territory because you've got such a small number of tests.
2: And I think one of the things that the test data is saying is is trace the contacts actually without looking at, uh, even before you get into looking at rates. And I agree, it's oh, it's man. extremely problematic, in the the ONS data and, and the commentary on that make really um, salutary reading. Um, but I think you know, we we need to get that test and trace system working really effectively, so that um, you know wh- wherever there are there are in, in, um, infections found. Um, that those can be shut down before they go into um, a wider outbreak. I think there was the article in the Lancet looking at the rates of reliable tracing that you need to make school opening less of a risk. I think that there's also a, a really interesting point there about you know what's the impact of asymptomatic cases of wider spread cases. Again, and again this is terribly new. Um, so the, the 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 medical response and the public health response are responding to a virus that's been around for you know a few months um we don't actually know what those those long-term health impacts are so though it is quite difficult to to, um, to to read what's the best way to respond in in public health terms yeah and i suppose these long-term impacts both
1: in 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 a public health sense and in a economic sense of what we're going to be yeah. focusing on going forward you know yeah. we sp- spoke about that recession that we've seen the country go into as we record today on um, Wednesday and the Chancellor said this morning, you know, I did say there were going to be hard times and now these hard times are here. I mean, what I suppose to give some kind of direction to hopefully how we can safeguard maybe against this being as devastating as it could be what can we be looking at what kind of industry should we be focusing on really in in our part of the world do you think to to kind of um to kind of help us recover the best we can and um, let's start with you tom
3: i think that i think a lot of uh the economy's success is to do with sentiment and how people feel and how confident they feel
1: yeah
3: and there's there was there's some really interesting research done by uh the Winton Centre for Risk at the University of Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, out of a huge number of countries they sort of looked at in the world, the UK is the most scared of coronavirus and the most worried about it. And obviously that feeds into then people's decision to spend, go out, uh, go out to eat, go on holiday, do all these kinds of activities, uh, which a lot of the North economy is reliant on. So you've got that challenge, which is more of a public messaging challenge. And I think that the, you know, the message that came out from government about, you know, stay home, save lives, protect the NHS was sort of too effective in some yeah, way. Yeah, clearly did its
1: job, didn't it? Absolutely. It now sort
3: of terrified some people, sort of, so they're in fear of moving an inch outside their doorstep. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of too much, <laughs> too much one direction. In terms of the... Uh, the fundamental uh, challenges that the North's economy has remain the same, right? A lot of parts of the North are stuck in a low productivity, low growth, low wage kind of tumble dryer whirring around that we need to escape from. And, and that hasn't – so there's two parts of the recovery. There's the, there's the immediate recovery part, which I think mm-hmm. is a lot to do with people's sentiment and feelings and whether they feel confident to go out. And there's the longer-term challenges – around uh, lower uh, education skills levels, less investment in R&D and innovation, which are going to take many, many years to recover from and tackle because those have been there for decades. And those those challenges haven't changed. They, they're still there.
1: And arguably are kind of made, I suppose, more difficult yeah. to reconcile through this. I mean, the R&D is one that we've focused on a lot at the Yorkshire Post and looked at that massive gap in spending, really, for what's spent in the north to the south. Is is, is R&D part of kind of what IPPR... North Seas is a real important uh, way to bring it back, Anna?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And that research and development needs to be in the cutting edge industries, um, so areas where the North has got some really good historic strengths, um, so in, in areas like health and life sciences. Um, yeah. But actually, that research and development investment needs to go right across the economy. So, for example, what what people sometimes call the everyday economy, so your retail, um, your, uh, your 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 hospitality, that can also be Benefit from um, from research and development. That um, that sort of research, um, bringing high tech industries together with things like our agriculture, um, can really really support um, a stronger economy. I mean, again, I think a big area for investment where the North has got great natural assets is the green economy. That has got real potential to create jobs. Um, for example, in generating clean energy, um, in working on our, our housing stock and our energy generation to make sure that the way we live is sustainable um, in sustainable transport um, but again on and Tom Vey rightly mentioned skills there and absolutely we, we really need a skill system that that gets going quickly um, so to make sure that people are getting the skills for the jobs that will be available both in the short term but also sustainably so that you know we don't end up with people going into a job now and then finding that that they're, they're not as employable in the industries around in five in five years time so we need skills development that that both looks at how people can can get work and do work productively now but also how um, they can build longer careers in the sort of reshaped economy Um, and that's partly about making sure that young people don't fall off a cliff edge with the risks of unemployment disruption to education um, so that young people have got opportunities to to train for the economy going forward and also that we've got real investment in lifelong learning and in making sure that people get into lifelong learning um, where jobs have gone and you know may not come back that so people will be looking to to move between industries between types of work.
1: I'm really glad you said that actually because there's so much focus isn't there on young people which is obviously really really important and kind of their chances coming out of school and university at the moment but also those opportunities for um, people whose industries. May take a hit and will need yeah. to retrain. That's arguably just as important because these people are going to need that help yeah. as well. And also that clean energy and things like that hull is going to be a massive kind of yeah. centre for that. Is it that we're really excited about? And I think
3: and, uh, and Grimsby's got the world's largest yes. uh, offshore maintenance of wind turbines as well down yeah. the coast. Mm-hmm.
1: We've got Absolutely, and these are all areas as well which um I think we we've definitely spoken about in the past, um, Tom, that are kind of vying to be kind of made freeports as well, Mm. aren't they? I mean, I'm going to hand over to you a little bit, because you really are the expert on this. I mean, what what could freeports mean for Yorkshire?
3: Well, so unless you're sort of a policy geek like uh, us lot on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast, you probably uh, don't know really what a Freeport's about. It's not one of those shopping centres that's got that branding. That is not <laughs> a Freeport. Um, there's 3,500 of these uh, around the world, and it's basically an area that's designated to be outside the country's customs territory. Uh, that's the most basic concept, so you don't get tariffs and duties put on the goods there, so it encourages manufacturing. But in um, much more recent years, I'm talking about the last 20, 30 years, a lot of these zones have had lots of other benefits laid on top. So they've had enhanced capital allowances to try and encourage investment in new machinery equipment. They've had uh, higher rates of R&D tax credits to encourage investment in the things that Anna was just talking about and uh, helping businesses to innovate they have things like no national insurance for jobs so they have a they a really quite wide range of benefits that are laid on top of them um, and the government said that they want to allocate ten of these free ports around the country um, and obviously they they're they're mainly around seaports or airports in general um, so that's the idea so they, so they uh, Looking at international experience and expertise, when they're done well, because obviously there's a mixed bag of them, some of them don't do that well and some of them are absolutely fantastic. When they're done well, they they really act as a uh, a real magnet for foreign direct investment and job creation. Um, And I think we definitely need that around some of our port areas in the north because there's really high levels of deprivation around a lot of the ports and airports.
1: Yeah, more important than ever. Absolutely. I know um, that there's kind of uh, they're pushing for it at the um, Doncaster Sheffield Airport. And I know there's others that are kind of in the running as well. And I think we're due hopefully to find out who gets to pick for those first uh, 10 quite soon. Um I know we're all very busy and we're running out of time. So just before we go, I would like if you could each of you tell me. Two or three policies, I guess, that you'd like to see coming in the next few months, few weeks, few months, that could really boost us in Yorkshire and the
2: North and help us get back on track. Anna, let's start with you. Um, I think uh, I would definitely want to see um, some serious investment in skills and in policies to make sure that people who need to enhance their skills um, to keep themselves employable uh, can get that training and development so that would be support for um, young people um, to get into job relevant and career relevant training um, and for um, particularly small businesses um, to increase uh, the the number of apprentices um, and for, for jobs to be created and sustained. Um, I think I'd want to see um, really a serious investment in long term industries. So our health and social care, um, our green and low carbon economy. Um, I think you, um, using the North's natural assets as a key part of the recovery um, will be a part of that. And I think investment in lifelong learning for older workers who lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How about you, Tom? What would you like to see?
3: Well, Jerry, I was so pleased you went to Anna first because it gave me a bit more thinking time. <laughs> I thought it was a, bit a, a sneaky question to put Anna on the spot. So thanks, Anna, for <laughs> helping me. Um, I mean, the first thing I think that's absolutely mission critical is getting schools fully back and reopened uh, in September and not faffing around with those anymore um, mm-hmm. because that's going to have long-term impacts and a lot of children's life chances, yeah. and especially the most deprived children who might be in, um, you know, small homes. They might be in homes where there is uh, drinking going on, drug problems. Either on the at-risk registers. Those kind of yeah. children are really going to have had a horrid time over the last few months and they need to get back as soon as possible. Um, the second thing which has been missing in the north has been... Patient capital. So, uh, what I mean by that is, is money available for investment that's not looking to get a return until five plus year time horizon, and maybe longer, ten year time horizon. Now, John Kay, who is a, a great economist, did a review into this for the government in 2012, and he found that the UK's capital markets, the financial markets, really sort of fail on this point and especially so in the north, because if we're trying to change places and turn places around, we need to have a longer-term time horizon with some of these investments. So I like to see a large sort of patient capital fund of some sort set up uh, where some of the risks is shared with the private sector um, to get some funding into places that have been a bit unloved and forgotten. Um, And then the third thing in terms of... um, I think a lot of, as I said about getting the economy back on track, a lot of it's about uh, mindset, sentiment, how people feel about the economy and their place. And I think that a key part of that would be to shift some of the key government departments up here to the north. Yeah. I'm not talking about shifting lots of back-office jobs um out as sort of an outsourcing kind of operation. I'm talking about shifting permanent secretary level senior civil servants to lead Sheffield, Doncaster, uh, Grimsley, all, all around the north, because it will do two things. One is it will help those key decision makers actually see some of the challenges that we face and we're trying to overcome. Two, they'll directly create some jobs in those local areas, and three, what you find that happens is you get sort of local ecosystems of businesses setting up to support them and feed into it. know, mm-hmm. if you move the Treasury to Leeds, I'm sure that, you know, the financial services sector of the Leeds economy uh, would get a boost because you've got the major financial sector of the UK is located there. And it would grow mm-hmm. even further and it would build to support the Treasury's work. So those are the three things for me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm sure that any government advisors listening, and I'm sure they do, why would they not listen to Podzone Country, uh, will be able to take away lots of uh, tips from there. Anna and Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sherry. And now let's cross over to the Yorkshire Post's political editor, Rob Parsons, who is joined by the local democracy reporter for Leeds, Richard Beecham, who's going to talk to him all about what's going on in politics in Leeds this week that you need to know about.
0: Hi there, I'm Rob Parsons and I'm the political editor at the Yorkshire Post. So while it's it's usually the drama from Westminster and Downing Street that captures the political headlines, actually many of the decisions that affect people's lives in Yorkshire are made much closer to home by local councils and combined authorities. And from big cities like Leeds and Bradford to rural shire councils in North Yorkshire and the mayoral authority in the Sheffield City region, the local political scenes in Yorkshire can be as fascinating as anything going on in SW1. With Parliament in recess, we thought now would be a good time to start looking at the big political issues in different parts of Yorkshire and the Humber with the help of the Local Democracy Reporter Service, or LDRS. Uh, In case you've not heard of it, this service, a partnership between the BBC and local media organisations, has put a dedicated reporter in town halls around the country whose job it is to report the comings and goings at local councils and other authorities. There are 13 in our region and dozens more up and down the country, so who better to tell us about the local issues that have got people talking? Uh, On our first go at this, we're joined today by Richard Beecham, who is the local democracy reporter for Leeds, Uh, Leeds United are back in the big time after getting promoted to the Premier League and pre-pandemic at least, with the likes of Channel 4 coming to the city, really felt like there was a buzz about the place. But there's so much more to Leeds' political scene than that. So Richard, what, what can you tell us about the five things you need to know about politics in Leeds?
4: Ooh, five things. Um, <laughs> Hi, Rob. Uh, yeah, so uh, where'd start with Leeds? Well, it's the second biggest unitary authority in the country. And uh, yeah, like you say, many people see a bright future with Channel 4 and Leeds United's promotion and stuff like that. But while those issues are probably positive for the city in the long term, there's plenty of short term problems that are currently facing the authority. Uh, the biggest of all, obviously, is the funding gap from Covid.
0: Now of course this is an issue that that isn't just affecting Leeds it's it's a big issue for councils around Yorkshire and around the country, but what's happening specifically with Leeds?
4: Yeah, well, um, like you say, it's it, it's a problem for lots of places and like a lot of other places, Leeds City Council is uh, going to have a very big financial black hole uh, due to COVID-19. Now, to, to sort of put it as simply as possible, uh, COVID's expected to cost the council about £200 million uh, in just this financial year, uh, and that's in both lost revenue, um, money they otherwise would have made that they're now not because of COVID, and from extra costs, uh, the extra money they're having to spend on things to do with COVID. Uh, Now, when you compare that to that £200 million to their total budget, which is just over £500 million, it's a huge, huge slice of it. Now, uh, the biggest problem around this isn't so much the debt itself, uh, but the law says that local authorities have to balance their budgets within every year. Now, other arms of the public sector, like uh, Whitehall departments and NHS trusts, they don't necessarily have to do this. And it gives them a bit more wriggle room financially. But if the council's running at a loss, it needs to scramble to make further savings before that financial year's out. Now,
0: obviously, this puts a lot of pressure on the government to sort of say what they can do to help. I mean, have they have they helped in any way?
4: Well, yeah, to an extent. They've they've given £43 million to Leeds in sort of two sets of grants that were quite early on in the pandemic. That was to to cover some of the extra COVID costs. And uh, since then, um, probably more, more recently, the council said that the £60 million hit that it'll see to its collection fund, that's the amount of money that it takes from council tax and business rates, that hit should only impact on next year's budget. So this all leaves them with a funding gap from that £200 million, it goes down to about £95 million. But this is still £95 million that they've got to find from somewhere and they've got to find it pretty soon.
0: Now, obviously, you speak to the council uh, quite frequently on, on a lot of different issues. What what are they saying
4: specifically about this? Well, they've been practically pleading with the government for more money to help out with this uh, for the past couple of months now. Um, now, £95 million might not sound a lot to, to, to people who keep their eyes on government spending, Um, you know we're we're often talking in terms of tens or hundreds of billions but um, the government will obviously be wary that if they did this for Leeds they'd have to do it for everybody else and that this would soon add up so if this extra money doesn't appear and at the money uh, sorry at the moment we've no reason to think that it will uh, then the council will have to put together an emergency budget uh, which will probably go before decision makers sometime about this September.
0: I see and so has the council been more specific about what areas could potentially be cut? Uh,
4: well, the, 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 they obviously don't want to preempt it since they're, since, since they're still kind of planning around it. But uh, he was speaking a couple of months ago, the council chief executive, Tom Reardon, uh, he suggested uh, in one of the meetings that I covered that one area they might have to look at would be events and culture, as this is a non-statutory duty. It's, it, it's, a, it's a duty that the council doesn't legally have to provide. So uh, this led to some... Pretty alarmist speculation that every council-run museum, gallery, library, event could be shutting down. Now, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but uh, when most of your budget goes on things like adult and child social care, these things that the council legally has to provide, then it leaves very few other things to cut. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. Um, so,
0: moving on, the the managed zone. Uh, it, it sounds those two words together sound quite boring, but actually, it, it's it's a quite a fascinating target that's been going on for a few years. Can you explain what's what's going on with that?
4: Yeah, so um this this I think it's it, it's more of a story to me at least that's that's that that's gonna rumble on over the future. Now uh, the manage zone it was introduced a few years ago. It's an area in South Leeds where prostitution's permitted to take place. Um it's something that'll make national headlines every now and then uh, but it's important to know that that, uh, that it's something that is always there and work always is happening around it. Now, uh, the council says things have been improving with the zone um, and that it's been policed much better now than it was. Uh, but this comes as they're embarking on the so-called uh, South Bank regeneration. Basically, the council wants to redevelop a lot of the old industrial areas in the south of the river near the city centre. But a lot of this borders with the managed zone. Um, also, there was a report put out recently by uh, by an academic who, who was commissioned by the council to look into the zone. Uh, it was recommended by them that the zone stays. And he also said that over the past couple of years, a lot of improvements have been made to the zone. It's been policed better and stuff like that um but the leader of the opposition group on the council says that it is really important for them to take local residents um uh opinions on board with this because uh while the managed zone itself um there's there's not an awful lot of people living around there it's it, it's kind of like an old industrial zone um it has been known to sort of uh Affect some of the areas nearby where people live. So, a uh, leader of the opposition group said that said to the council that they could be taking local residents for fools uh, if they didn't consult them more. So, I mean, you get the feeling that this is an issue that isn't really going to go away for the council anytime soon. Yeah, I think you're right there. Absolutely. <laughs> um,
0: moving into the uh, into the city centre. I mean, I, I haven't been into the city centre since the start of lockdown. I must I must admit, but um, I, I gather, I imagine it's a pretty quiet place or a lot quieter than it was before but uh, I gather there's a lot of towers going up in the city centre at the moment is that is that right?
4: Yeah um, so I'm lucky enough I suppose you'd say to have to read all the planning applications uh, that go before committees in Leeds Um, and the number of proposed tower blocks between about 20 and 40 storeys in Leeds uh, it's surprisingly high Um, at the moment, and it has been over the past couple of years that I've been covering it. Now, particularly in this part of Leeds, around the Merrion Centre, that sort of north of the city centre kind of area, Uh, some of them are being built right now. Um, Anybody who's been recently will see quite a lot of cranes and quite a lot of uh, construction sites around there. Uh, And the city centre could look very different in uh, the next couple of years. Uh,
0: Interesting. Is that uh, considered to be a problem by many people?
4: Well, I mean, design's usually a matter of taste, but uh, there was a piece by Oliver Wainwright in The Guardian last month that got quite a lot of people talking. Uh, he claimed that the north end of the city centre was starting to look like, uh, I think he said it was a depot of discarded fridges, which um, <laughs> and a <and>, lot. <laughs> Because his argument was that a lot of the new tall towers and the proposed towers and stuff like that, uh, they look quite similar, lots of glass, lots of white cladding, lots of stuff like that. So, uh, But having said that, I think it's important to understand that the, the planning process and some of the pressures on some of the planners in the council, because a Leeds City Council, like any other council, it has a target for the number of houses that it has to build over the coming years. Uh, As the population increases, we need to build more houses. Not many people would disagree with that. Uh, But as a result of this, uh, council planning departments have fixed rules that developers should meet with designs. Now, I say should. Uh, because not all of them do all of the time, uh, and there's often also plenty of objections from local residents and councillors when there's when there's big sort of developments on the horizon. So this can then leave other councillors on the plans panel having to vote on whether whether or not a development should take place. Uh, So while they have the right to exercise the judgment on whether the plans are appropriate, they can't just reject something just because they don't like the look of it. Uh, They need sound planning reasons if they want to turn something down. Uh, And what's more, if they did turn something down for reasons that weren't exactly rock solid, uh, the developers then can take it to appeal, where it's then likely that a government planning inspector would overturn the decision and make the council pay costs for the other side. Uh, So this is something I think that big authorities like Leeds are going to face a lot in the coming years. not just with big towers in the city centre, but with proposed housing developments all over the district. Um, Unless they come up with rock-solid arguments, like I said, against developers, uh, they could well lose on appeal and it could leave councils even more out of pocket than they are at the moment. Uh, Interesting stuff. Now, uh, people in Leeds or wider Yorkshire might be
0: thinking about going on holiday in the coming months, maybe not to to Spain, but to uh, other areas. So they they might be wondering what's going on with... um, Leeds Bradford Airport at the moment. Can
4: you fill us in on the, the latest on that? Yeah, um, don't we all want to know what's happening with that? I mean, uh, this this is probably the thing I get more emails than anything else about. Um, Leeds Bradford Airport issue has become really complicated and there's lots of competing interests in it and the council's found themselves right in the middle of all this. Uh, so, To give kind of a potted history, Leeds Bradford Airport, it's not really changed much since the 1990s, uh, partly because its location means that it's difficult to access. It's pretty much up on a hill with one road going there. Um, Compare this with somewhere like Manchester that has a rail link. It has far superior road networks around it, and you can see why other airports in the UK have found it easier to expand over the years than Leeds Bradford has. Now, Leeds Bradford Airport, it's keen to expand itself now, Um, and have more flights going in and out, it's believed that more people coming in and out of Leeds would mean more money for the local economy and stuff like that. Um, But uh, you may remember that we kind of had a sort of mini green revolution in early 2019, which um, led to Leeds City Council announcing a climate emergency. Now, they committed to getting carbon levels down dramatically over the coming years along with this. Um, Since then... Uh, despite getting planning permission for an earlier form of the airport expansion, LBA has now put in proposals proposals for a new larger terminal, which could accommodate more flights and passengers. Now, environmental campaigners have said that more flights equals more emissions, and that approving this would go completely against the council's climate emergency promises, and they've been staging several protests against it. I'm sure none of us will forget the uh, plans panel meeting back in January, where several protesters staged a die-in and uh, the meeting had to be suspended for about half an hour that was uh i mean it it it, it entertained me for one i mean I, I i i was immediately i was immediately up there with my camera phone <laughs> it's um on, it's it's somewhere on my twitter if uh, if uh, People want to look it up from back in January. But, um, but yeah, so uh, local residents, uh, along with the area's Tory councillors, they've also complained about this because they say that the extra flying hours that come with the uh, application... Um, uh, they'd impact on the lives of local residents who, at the end of the day, just want to get a good night's sleep. So, uh, a lot of campaigners, as well, have asked, "What's the point in expanding the airport right now? we just had COVID. The world's economy is expected to contract massively. How can we expect more international travel to take place anytime soon?" Uh, so, that's that's the kind of argu- well, the kind of potted arguments against uh, the airport themselves have said that the terminals are going to be more environmentally friendly than the current terminal. Uh, that's the building itself, not not the, the flights themselves. And that the extra number of jobs, along with the boost to the region's economy, would be worth the extra flights. Uh, so um, uh, that's kind of uh, where we are with uh, that side at the moment. Now, the final decision is expected to be made later this year, but um, many members will probably be feeling like they're having to make a choice between the economy and the environment.
0: Yes, I see. I see. So, well, these these are all big, big, weighty, uh, serious, heavy topics. Uh, There must be something going on in Leeds politics at the moment that can uh, lighten lighten the mood a bit.
4: Well, uh, well, yeah. I suppose uh, what better way to lighten the mood than uh, with laughter or uh, laughing gas? to be precise. Uh, did, you, <laughs> did you like that thing? That was, uh, I did, that was I enjoyed good. that, that was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you, you, you may have noticed, and I'm sure the listeners may have noticed, quite a lot of small metal canisters uh, that have being discarded on street corners near where they live. Now, these are nitrous oxide canisters um it's the gas that's sometimes used by medical professionals as an anaesthetic but it has the residual effect of making us laugh uh now there was a meeting last month to look into the issue of this um nitrous oxide or it's also known as nox uh some people call it hippie crack i'm i'm not sure where that comes from but um it was decided that the uh, the council committee look into it a little bit further uh, now it's been claimed um it was claimed at this meeting by one of the council officers that as a consequence of the COVID 19 lockdown, uh, the use of the substance has become more prevalent, particularly among young people. Now, uh, in, In terms of NOx itself, uh, as far as we know, it's not illegal to be in possession of the substance, but it is a criminal offence to possess it with intent to supply as a psychoactive substance. Uh, So um, it has a much lower death rate than other controlled drugs, but it can be dangerous when consumed with alcohol. And a lot of people just don't like the extra litter it causes. So uh, it was agreed by the council to look into the issue further. So we might hear something a bit more about this further down the line.
0: I see. Well, it's a lighter subject in some respects, uh, but still, obviously, with a bit of a, a serious undertone. Well, Richard, thank you so much for that. That that's fascinating. There's there's a lot going on in Leeds that I think maybe people outside the city, or perhaps even in the city, wouldn't necessarily know about. And uh, in in the coming weeks on uh, on Pod Country, we'll be we'll be exploring a few of the other bits of Yorkshire to see what's going on. Uh, in those areas. So we'll leave it there. I want to say thanks to Richard for uh, filling us in on Leeds, and we will see you on the podcast uh, next week. Thanks very much, and bye-bye. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you also heard from Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post political editor today. We can be found on any platform that you usually find your podcast, whether that's iTunes, Google, Spotify, or any of the myriad of other platforms that people use. Please do leave us a review and subscribe and tell your friends because it really helps boost us in the charts. And we'll be back next week.
2: This weekend at Augusta, it's the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus streamed via internet. Offer ends 2nd of May. Standard pricing after three months.